Well, my name is Kyle Burkholder. I'm excited to be here with you. We are going to continue in uh, what we've been calling a series, but in, in essence, we're, we're on a journey together with Jesus. And uh, we are calling it The Way because Jesus called it The Way. And what this looks like is uh, Jesus takes this long uh, three to five day walk from the area around the Sea of Galilee down through the country land of Samaria, through uh, an area where many of the people that were there would not have been friendly with Jesus, hostile territory. And what we've purposed to do, and I remind you of this almost every single week, what we've purposed to do in, in looking at this part of the scripture is to learn what does it look like for us to walk through a land that might be hostile? What does it look like for us to walk through a place in the way of Jesus, in the, in the footsteps of Jesus, even if the land isn't necessarily for us or for him. And so today what we're going to do is continue walking with Jesus. And within today's sermon, you're going to, I think, hear two things. The first thing you're going to hear is something you've never heard preached about before. The second thing you're going to hear is something that I think Jesus really wants you to hear. And so for some context, what's happening before we get to where we are in the text today uh, Jesus has been teaching people how to pray. They say, how do we pray? And so he helps them learn how to pray. And then, then he be- begins to explain demons and evil and how does this work? And, and the crowds are increasing around him as he, as he teaches. He's drawing people in. He's drawing us in. So the crowds are growing and then there's a shout from within the crowd. And we'll just read it in Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 27. The scripture says, while Jesus was saying these things, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nurse. But he said, on the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. So obviously you've heard this before. You know, you know about those famous parts of scripture, the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord's Prayer, the bosom blessing. Wait, what? (laughs) I've never heard this preached on. No one has ever taken this and said, here's what we're going to do. Is this woman who shouted about the breasts at which Jesus nursed. Let's talk about that for a Sunday. And we have more to get to than just that. But I said, what does that mean? It's in there for a reason. Let's look at it. She essentially says, what a blessing to be the womb that brought Jesus into the world. The woman who nursed him into being such an incredible teacher. She's following along and she goes, blessing upon your mother. If it was me, if you were sitting here and one of you, please don't shout this out. You could type it online. You should just type blessing to your mother right now and that'll be as far as we need to go. If you shout out blessing to your mother or blessed are the breasts at which you nurse, you know what I would do? I would blush, ignore you, and move on. Jesus is not me. Thank the Lord. Jesus offers a rebuttal. Jesus gives a counter argument to a woman who shouts out from the crowd. Jesus says that's nothing. True blessing is for those who hear the word of God and respond. Like, whoa. So Jesus is saying far greater to be a sinner regenerated by the Holy Spirit than to be the person who generated the Son of God. We should be noticing a theme by now. Jesus continually is is attacking this idea that our associations matter, that our religious works matter, that our rituals matter, that all the different things that we cobble together that we call faith, that any of that matters short of him. So he hears somebody say, blessed is your mother. And he says, you're still focusing on relatives and I'm calling them irrelevant. You're still focusing on the past and I'm calling you to look to the future. You're still thinking about associations and it's not about that. There's a higher calling. The scripture in Romans 10 says, faith comes by hearing. In Matthew 7, it says that that the, the fruit, that our faith is evidenced by fruit. 
So faith comes by hearing. That's a gift. You heard it? Gift. You've heard it. Now, now, how do you know if you've done anything with it? There will be fruit, and that's the evidence of your faith. And so Jesus is, in essence, putting these two things together before they've ever been unpacked anywhere else. And he's saying, listen, blessed are you who hears it. That's a gift. You heard the word of God. And those who hear and respond. Those who hear and observe it. And this isn't observation in the way that we think of observation, like, oh, there's a bird flying through the sky, observed it. This is observed like a, a soldier, a sentinel stands at a guard post. He's observing his post. He's watching for threats, holding a spot. This is like when we say President's Day is observed on a Monday. You ever seen that? Remember when we had these things called calendars that were paper and they, it would always say President's Day and then in parentheses it would say observed what is that about? That's somebody going, this has to be marked. You have to do this thing. President's Day, it can't be a Thursday, it's a Monday. And so we're going to have President's Day observed. Why? Because people need 40% off a mattress. We need, that's all President's Day is for. Anyway, but we, we would have holidays and you put them observed on the Friday or the Monday. So people would be sure to take time out and recognize and notice and act like it's President's Day. So when you have Independence Day observed, because July 4th is on a Tuesday, so they give you Monday off. It's Independence Day observed. Act like it. Jesus is saying, blessed are you who hear the word of God and then act like it. Even more blessed are those who guard it with their lives. Eugene Peterson's translation says, who guard faith with their lives. That idea of that soldier at the post, I'm guarding this faith with everything I am. That's observance. To have salvation and refuse to release it. And here's what this means for us. What this means for us as faithful churchgoers is where you go to church means nothing compared to whether you are being the church. Jesus is again attacking associations and he's saying where you go to church means nothing compared to whether you are the church wherever you go. Compared to whether you're being the church as you take on your life. Your association, your attendance doesn't earn you anything. The primary evidence of your faith is your association with a church or your attendance at a church. That's a red flag. Because that's not faith. Now, that's a strange thing to say in an era of COVID when every church around, they're running about 30% of the human beings in the seats that we used to have in the seats. And for most pastors, there's this sinking thing in you that, that wants to tie your worth to how many people are in seats, and that's not healthy or right. So what a strange thing to say, it doesn't really matter if you attend, and, and I don't think I'm saying that. What I'm saying is your attendance is not faith, and faith is not an attendance. And Jesus is saying your associations, your attendance, your religious rituals, your, those things in and of themselves aren't faith. He actually has, uh, he doubles down on this as if to prove the point, because I, I kind of get, I got a little nervous, like I don't want to disincentivize people to attend because there's great blessing and benefit to being together and mixing with the body and, and meeting a new person and having a cool connection and that's, there's a blessing in that. So in my head, I'm having this conversation going, don't disincentivize people showing up. That's kind of cool when the body gathers and this cool thing happens. And yet in Luke 11, we continue to read and Jesus says this, it says, as the crowd swelled, he took a fresh tack. So remember, the crowds are growing in Luke 11, and then Jesus says this, the mood of the age is all wrong. The crowds grow. Big attendance, Jesus. Keep them here. What does he do? The opposite. The mood of this age is all wrong. Everybody's looking for proof, but you're looking for the wrong kind. 
All you're looking for is something to titillate your curiosity, to satisfy your lust for miracles. The only proof you're going to get is the Jonah proof that was given to the Ninevites, which looks like no proof at all. What Jonah was to Nineveh, the son of man is to this age, and on judgment day, the Ninevites will stand up and give evidence that will condemn this generation, because when Jonah preached to them, they changed their lives. A far greater preacher than Jonah is here, and yet you squabble about proofs. On judgment day, the queen of Sheba will come forward and bring evidence that condemns this generation, because she traveled from a far corner of the earth to listen to the wise Solomon. Wisdom far greater than Solomon is right in front of you, and you quibble over evidence. The crowd grows and Jesus goes, your associations don't mean anything. It's bigger than that. It's higher than that. It's deeper than that. Listen. So he lays into people. Let's talk about love for a minute. I have uh, two daughters, 11-year-old, 8-year-old. Um, objectively, not subjectively, this is not a father's eyes. They're just brilliant and beautiful. Objectively, it's just true. It's fact. One day, while I have these two daughters, one day I will have prospective sons-in-law. I will have a young man come to me and seek my approval for him to ask my daughter to marry him. This is how, you know, that's how it works in my head. We'll see. They might elope and I'll miss the whole thing, but we'll see. So young man, this is typically how it works, comes forward to profess love. So he will come to me, and then what I will do for this young man this blessed young man who will be so glad he got me, is I will seek proof. I will say, show me proof. So he will point to the ring that he bought her. He saved two weeks, two months, two years, two lifetime salary to buy this ring. Look at this ring. It proves my love. And I will say, I reject that. There is no evidence of your love in the ring. He'll point to his career track, the great job he has, or the potential salary he has, or, or he already has an IRA. Look, I'm already planning for our future. Or look at my car, I'm going to keep her safe. I bought the Volvo. And I'll reject that. I'll say, that's not love. He'll point to his family connections or his church heritage or some legacy that he's been left by other men in his family. He'll point to these great legacies he's inherited and the ones he wants to continue. And I'll reject that. And I'll say, that guarantees nothing. And then I will sit him down very gently and I will say, son, let me tell you something. Love is not defined by what you're willing to give someone, but by what you're willing to give up for them. He will take a deep breath and try to figure out what I just said, so I'll put it up on the screens. And I will say, love is not defined by what you're willing to give someone, but by what you're willing to give up for them. And so I will then ask, what sacrifices are acceptable to this young man? What if it costs you that career that you're into? What if it costs you the car or the 401k? What if it costs you the ring? What if it costs you everything? Then I'll set down the baseball bat that I've been holding for this whole conversation. And I will whisper, son, what if it costs you your life? And his eyes will get big and he'll stammer about something and I'll say, no, no, that's the point. This will cost you your life. That's what marriage is. It costs you your life. That's what you're doing. You're giving your life to another. That's love. See, young love is full of surface level proofs, these proofs that Jesus is talking about. Curiosities and titillations and lusts, and those aren't actually bad things unless they're misused. Those are good things. 
Those draw us into the story of love in, in unique and interesting ways. But they aren't in and of themselves love. They're the entry in. They're the, the reason to look deeper. Deep love, lasting love, is built on submission and sacrifice. And you can't find that in a ring. You can't find that in a job. You can't find that in a promise. You find that over years. When we see those love stories, those true, deep, rich, lasting stories, I have this thing in my head where I'll find my son-in-law on his 30th anniversary with my daughter. And I'll say, now you can marry her. Now you proved it. Because it's not in the ring. It's not in the first day. It's not in the first week. It's in the first decade or two or four. Submission and sacrifice take years to cultivate. And a love like that rests on something deeper than rings and retirement plans, doesn't it? And this is nice premarital counseling. You're going, this is great. It's free. You're welcome to keep that. But what does it have to do with Jesus? He's talking about Jonah and you're talking about your daughters and I don't understand it. Good. I'm glad. He's telling the crowds, you're looking at the wrong things. You're plainly looking at the wrong things. You're looking for the ring, but it's bigger than that. It's deeper than that. You want little miracles, but it's bigger than that. It's, it's, it's deeper than that. And he, he's trying to explain to them that what they're looking for, these surface-level curiosities, aren't what he was here to bring. They're squabbling over the proofs. He heals, but he's doing it on the Sabbath. What does it mean? They quibble over the evidence. He acts like a king, but he's homeless. Could he really be king? Jesus says the Jonah proof is coming. Jonah preached to the people of Nineveh. He told them to repent, and they did. Jesus comes and preaches the same to the people of the Sea of Galilee, the people around Capernaum, Magdala, and Jerusalem. They mocked him and crucified him. But Jesus is the true and better Jonah. Jesus is the true and better Jonah. Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days, and Jesus calls us to something deeper, and he himself did deeper first, because while Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days, Jesus goes into the belly of sin and death for three days. And as Jonah emerges, so does Jesus. Jesus is looking at things going, I will be in the belly of death for three days, and you're still looking for these little proofs on the surface. You've confused the symbol of a ring for the sacrifice of real love. You've confused minor miracles for the miracle maker. In church, it's still true. Kind of turn our nose at these. How come they didn't notice? He's right there. They're missing it. Gosh. And we take a long look at our own lives and we go, we're missing it. Jesus is using old language for what we would say, hey, you're missing the forest for the trees. You're so stuck on the in particular bits that you've missed the glory that's showing up in the hole. I would say you're missing the mountain piercing the clouds while you watch the pebble fall into the valley. Some years ago, I got invited to go to Peru. It's sort of a consulting trip, really. There was a mission down there that was doing some work. They invited me down to, to preview it in case I wanted to bring our people. But then we had taken, you know, we took two or 300 people on, on global mission trips a year. So they said, we kind of like your opinion. So we went on this trip and it was just me. I just flew into Mexico City and then they sent me to Lima. And in Lima, they put me on a plane for Cusco, this little city 11,000 feet up in the bowl of these, this mountain range. You fly like up at the end of the flight. It's a weird feeling. And they're like, we're about to land and you're going up. And then you land on this little runway in the middle of a bowl. 
And they got me there. They promised that I was going to get to see Machu Picchu. And I was pretty excited about this, like wonder of the world, Machu Picchu. Yes, I will. How many days? Five days? Yes, I'm there. Spoiler alert, I never saw Machu Picchu because uh, Mr. Magoo was basically the guy who was leading me. And for people who know who Mr. Magoo is, one, I'm sorry that like a third of the crowd knows who Mr. Magoo is. He's this clueless, aloof, kind of like, wait, it's Thursday? You're leaving? Oh, well, we didn't get to Machu Picchu. And I'm like, yeah, really? So we didn't get to Machu Picchu, but... I had this incredible experience while I'm advising them about their, the way they're doing this mission trip and the way that they have their orphanage set up and all these things. It was also the only place I ever saw a Tom's shoe drop. Anybody who's ever worn Tom's shoes and you go, I wonder if they really send shoes around the world. They do. And um, I saw like a warehouse full of Tom's shoes in Peru and the local people said they weren't going to hand them out because it was going to put the cobbler out of business. So that's good news. Okay, so I'm, I'm in Peru, and, and the guy goes, hey, you want to come see one of these villages we get to minister to? And I was like, yeah, okay, what does that mean? So we're 11,000 feet up, 12,000 feet up, and he goes, well, it's just up the mountain a bit. And I'm like, okay, I already can't breathe, but let's go. And so we get in the truck, me and this other guy, and we do this switchbacky thing all the way up this kind of steep mountain ledge, and you, just, you, know, you see billy goats like falling off. It's too steep. And, and so we're just kind of making our way up, and there's the other guy with me, and he's not looking at anything except all the pebbles falling off the side of the mountain, just tumbling into the valley to their ultimate demise. And, and he's, like, gripping the, the side of the door and panicking, and I'm just in awe. Because all around us are these 15, 18, 19,000 foot snow-capped peaks. We're in the beautiful Andes Mountains, and it's just crazy beautiful, gorgeous. We finally make our way up the last switchback, and then it opens up into, I kid you not, at like 15,000 feet, there's a plateau, then there's a soccer field, and there's a whole city, like on this big flat piece of whatever in the middle of the mountains. And so you look around, and it's like a fairy tale, peak, 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 and then beautiful lush grass. And I went, this is like heaven. It's incredible. And then we're peeling our friend's fingers off the door as he's, he hasn't even noticed. He's so busy worried about the little things. He's so busy worried about this distraction and this danger. He never took in the beauty of what we were there to do. And, and so we finally get out, and he's still kind of half panicking, a little nauseous. And I'm out playing soccer at 15,000 feet with a bunch of kids that just showed up out of the mountains. I played for at least eight seconds before I, like, asphyxiated and passed out due to lack of oxygen. It was great. I think Jesus is saying to his friends and followers, he says, look up. Take your hands off the door and look up. Stop worrying about the little proof. Stop quibbling over the silly things. Look up. There's something so much more beautiful here. There's something so much more glorious here. You just have to get your eyes on it. Get off all the distractions and get onto the thing that's really happening in front of you. And Jesus is like, it's me. We're still there. We're so busy with Christianity, we're leaving Jesus out of it. Our current age is not that different than the age that was. To paraphrase Dr. Tony Evans, I love this analogy. He said, too many people are satisfied to just sit and, and read the menu of God. Like you go to a restaurant and they have this great menu and you just, you're salivating, just reading the incredible things. It's almost lunchtime. Maybe you're thinking about it right now. Going, oh, burger with bacon and cheese and fried egg on top. That sounds good. And then you flip over a page and they got steaks and you flip over a page and the salad has this, oh, wow. And you're looking at all the different options and you love this menu. Have you ever done this? Have you ever looked through a menu at a restaurant, gotten really excited, felt your stomach growl, and the waiter comes, the waitress comes, and they go, hey, so what are you going to have? And you go, no, 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 we just wanted to read the menu. We're, we're leaving now. Dr. Tony Evans says that's what modern Christianity mostly is like, that most of us, we grab the menu, 
And we look through, ooh, that's interesting. That's cool. That sounds good. Isn't that beautiful? Kind of spicy there, Paul. Kind of spicy. And we go through and we read the menu of God and we really admire the menu and it sounds great and I want to know how it's made and tell me more. Ooh, organic. This is cool. And we love the menu of God. We never taste it. We never stay long enough to taste. The Bible says, taste and see the goodness of the Lord. Taste and see the goodness of the Lord. No one gets nourished by the menu. We're people of the resurrection. And we're busy reading the menu and wondering why it doesn't satisfy. We're busy reading the Christian menu of things we're supposed to do and behaviors we're supposed to avoid and things we're supposed to like or dislike. And, and, and we do that and we wonder, why does this feel not, this isn't satisfying. This is what I got called to. Taste and see. Knowing the menu is, is not being nourished by the meal. They're not the same thing. You can know the menu and never be nourished by the meal. You've been invited to lean deeper into Jesus. To taste and see that the Lord is good. It's a familiar verse around Christmas that you often hear from the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 9, we read this a lot around Christmas because it's about the baby Jesus being born. For to us, a child is born. Talking about Jesus. A son is given and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That's a beautiful menu, isn't it? How many of us access that menu and taste and see the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace? How many of us actually know that inside and out? We live in an age where we all need help. We need to lean in to the Wonderful Counselor who isn't just here for you, but lives in you, is willing to guide you and direct you when you're troubled, when you're alone. There's a counselor here for you. We exist in a world where faithful living is not for the faint of heart. You follow a mighty God from whom bravery and courage flow like mighty rushing rivers. You have access to that. We carry low-level anxiety over what changes and challenges tomorrow might bring. And you have the everlasting Father who created today and is seen tomorrow, who is not surprised that something called COVID-19 exists. Not surprised, not worried. My wife and I were having a conversation this week and we kind of had this light bulb moment where people, I've heard this said a lot in the season where people go, it's just exhausting because I never know what's coming next. I never know what tomorrow's going to hold. It's just one thing after. I just never know what tomorrow's going to bring. And the light bulb kind of clicked on for us. And we said, when did you ever know what tomorrow's going to bring? You've never known what tomorrow's going to bring. We had deluded assumptions of what tomorrow was going to bring, but we never knew. And so rooted in my own deluded assumptions, yeah, I feel all kind of tossed and turned now because I don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. Rooted in the everlasting Father, I can trust that he's already seen tomorrow, he's ordained it, and he's going to bring it in you. Either way, we're going to be Okay. He's got a plan for it. He has a plan not only for it to be here, but to be good for us, to draw us to himself, to bring him closer to us. And so, yeah, I don't know what tomorrow's going to hold. Earthquakes, plagues, I don't know. Bowling Green just falls into the earth. It's a giant sinkhole and we're all, like, I don't know. It wouldn't surprise anybody. It's 2020. Guess what? God already knows. He's not worried. He's got a plan. We tumble through the chaos that is 2020, every moment of every day, every moment of every day is held together by the Prince of Peace. And so it is our choice 
We wake up every day with a choice to embrace the chaos of the day or embrace the Prince of Peace, and it is up to us. If you're reading the menu of Christian life, you are embracing the chaos because you go, that peace thing sounds good. I don't feel it. You have to lean in. You have to taste it. You have to invite it into you. You have to ingest it and digest it and learn to live with it. Then it nourishes you. We get so busy living out life as Christians, we forget to find our life in Christ. We get so busy living out the Christian life that we forget to find our life in Christ. We are people of the cross and the resurrection. The empty tomb is the evidence of love for us. The Christ lived for us, died for us, rose for us. If love is defined by what you're willing to give up for another, how much must Jesus love you? To give up his life. To invite you to see that the grave couldn't hold him, that he is risen. To, to invite you to look inside, to taste and see. Test him out. You go to Israel, and when they reopen to tourism, whenever that day comes, there are multiple sites that are the garden, the, the garden of the empty tomb. Multiple sites. People are, are desperate to figure out which one is it. And there's debates. Is it this one? Is it that one? Is it the third one? Which one is the real side of Jesus? Because people are desperate to see an empty cave, an empty tomb. Why? Because it does something to our souls to realize that he was crucified, died, buried, and he isn't there anymore. And it doesn't matter which one it is. It doesn't matter which carved out hunk of rock that Jesus escaped from. It isn't what it's about. The fact is, not in any of them. He is resurrected and he has invited us to be people of the resurrection. Invited to follow a risen Jesus in our resurrected lives. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you confess with your heart, confess with your mouth, believe with your heart, if you would call yourself a believer, Jesus says, you have experienced resurrection in me. That your life is brand new today, not when you die, today. That no matter where you are or what you've done, no matter brokenness or shame or hurt or heartbreak can separate you from the love of God because Jesus loved you enough to sacrifice everything for you. Jesus doesn't want the cleaned up version of you. Jesus is not waiting on the religiously right person. Jesus didn't die for you so that you could maybe choose to follow him once you have it all together. I will tell you this, if you are looking for a place to come and practice some good, clean Christianity, it is not coming to church. If you are looking for a place that will challenge you to follow the risen Christ, you're in the right spot. If you want Christian life, there are lots of places that will let you play Christian life. I'm not interested in that. I want to play life in Christ. Because it is so much more powerful, it is so much greater, it is the most amazing thing. And when we find our way into life in Christ, the Prince of Peace, Mighty Counselor, Everlasting Father, when we find our way into that, we find the flourishing we were designed for. So if you're waiting to be good enough for God, got a newsflash, he's not waiting for that. He sent Jesus before you made your first mistake. If you're waiting to get your life cleaned up, stop. Jesus doesn't want the cleaned up version of you. He wants you like you are. Come as you are. Follow me as you are. I'll take you right where you are and we'll grow together. So your invitation today is not in the Christian life. It's in life in Christ. 
maybe you've been following Jesus a long time, but as sort of a religious thing and you've never actually surrendered your life and gone, yeah, I'm in. I'll take this life in Christ. It's a little scary, a little intense. I'll try it on. You're invited. Maybe you don't believe yet. You're on the cusp, but you go, man, there's just big questions for me. You're invited to follow anyway. Test him. Try him. Follow See what it looks like to live life with the risen Savior. Is if you really live life with Jesus, you're not going to want to live any other way. So your challenge is to choose Jesus today, to come as you are, and be found in Christ. I invited Steph to lead us in a song that I kind of think of as a prayer from God to you. If you could get your head in that. We, we pray and we receive back. This is one of those invitational songs that is the reminder of who we are and who we're called to be. It's a reminder of what God is inviting us into. And so for this first song, my actual invitation to you is to sit back and let the words land real deep. See where that takes you. Then we'll invite you to stand and we'll all sing together when that time comes. But for now,
Oh, oh, oh. 